Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello. We are back with yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. Um, we've been taking a bit of a hiatus. Um, I came down with something, and I was kind of out of commission for about two weeks, but I am ready to dive back in. I'm excited to get back into our study in Ecclesiastes. We've been going through Ecclesiastes for quite some time now, a couple months, and it's been great. There's been a lot of good stuff um, in this this book. It's been very beneficial to me. And we're coming to um, chapter 7. We, were, we started chapter 7 before the before the break, and we will um, do another another chunk. This is the end of that poetic stanza we see at the beginning and it kind of completes some of the thoughts that we saw in the first half um but i'm excited to dive in um for clarity's sake i found that this particular passage um reads better with the word choice of the new king james translation i found that the word choice there was a little more direct a bit more um you know it was it's just stronger vocabulary so, reading out of the New King James Version, picking up in verse 8, and reading down, sorry, verse 7, and reading down to verse 14, it says, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning these, concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. And in this, there are a few um, key words that will come across in this text, but going verse by verse, uh, we will start in verse 7. And so continuing our guided tour of chapter 7, Solomon continues discussing the practice of wisdom. He lays out a sort of sort of a list 
of these virtuous things, and then he considers their source. And first up, he talks about pride and patience and other things. It says that oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. Um, to put that as literally as possible, um, oppression makes the wise irrational. That's how um, some Jewish scholars have rendered it. One copy of the Tanakh um, renders it that way as well. Um, and when I read phrases like that, I'm reminded of G.K. Chesterton, who said that the, the madman is not one who has lost his reason. The madman is the man who has lost everything except his reason. And so when we read things like irrational, when we read things like destroys the wise man's reason, um, we're not talking about just insanity, a mere insanity, because as Chesterton put in his usual wit, crazy people have a sense of re ration, it's just not rational to us. And so we're not looking at, at just somebody went crazy, this is something unique. This is something uniquely horrible. This is a great defacement of the image of God. Oppression des destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. And we're talking about something that deforms a person, something that is, this is a great injustice against who we are. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So when we read things like a bribe debases the heart or destroying a man's reason, we're talking about and we're talking about on some level an insult against that which God has made. We're talking about something that should not be. And so when we look at this, we've got to go back to Genesis. One of the common themes I'm finding in Ecclesiastes is how much it leads us back to Genesis. Because the bribes, the, the bad situations we find ourselves in because of oppression does damage to the heart. Because this is not good. And we were made for that which is good. God created man in his own image. John Calvin notes on this that it means... The phrase made in the image of God means that man was not rich by virtue of his own gifts, meaning it was not, the image of God wasn't something man had within him that defined it, but that his blessedness lay in his partnership with God. That what it means to be in the image of God is not, um, hey, I look like God, or I have this, I have that, but rather it is about that covenantal relation between God and his people. That we are bound to God. And God has made himself known to us. That he has entered into a unique relationship with humanity as opposed to the cows and the sheep and the dogs. And so when we see things like oppression, when we see bribes, and we see this kind of moral defacement, that does not fit into what that, that defined relationship God entered into with man. And that is, that is the great injustice there, is a defacement of that covenantal relation with God. 
that there is something deeply wrong that goes deeper than just the oppression itself, but it's the principles involved with power structures and the different dynamics when we assert ourselves as God over other people. And we are a wicked God when we are Pharaoh over our own Israelites. That is a problem. And that speaks to a much deeper problem in the human heart. Because we were made in the image of God. We were made for good things. But look at what we have wrought in this world. Oppression destroys a wise man's reason. And a bribe debases the heart. Verse 8. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. This is important. That, that is something we could ponder for a moment. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. In the Greek Septuagint, that word end is eschate, or which is a derivative of the word eschaton, which is where we get the word eschatology, the study of last things. And it means end. It means a defined, specific, specified end. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. So, we've been looking at Genesis. We've been, we've been talking about how Ecclesiastes leads us back to the garden, back to the way things began. But how does it lead us back forwards? How does it lead us forwards to where we think this will end? The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Christ is making all things new. You see this in Revelation 21. There is a coming world. There is a better reality that is coming. There is, there is new. There's something new that will be revealed to us. Revelation 21 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel has a vision of the city of God. Um, and John uses some of that language in Revelation, but the the name for the city of God, says Ezekiel, is the Lord is there. So there is coming a there is a coming end to this world as we see it today. There will be a new world that comes where God will dwell physically in our midst in a way that is visible. He will rule and reign in our midst. That it won't be he is the image of the invisible God, but that we will see God as he is, that we will be brought into 
the inner sanctum and we will worship God with our eyes fixed on him. God dwells with his people. Amen. And so how do we get there? How do we how do we move from Genesis to there? That's important. Because the, the, the end of a thing is better than its beginning. As good as the garden was, as good as things were, when God looked over all he had made and said, it is very good. There is a greater glory to be revealed in the return of Christ, when he makes all things new, when he does away with sin and death and sorrow and pain and crying. There is a greater world that is coming. And the reality is the way we live now, as has been evidenced through Ecclesiastes, the way we live now has meaning. There, there is a deeper realization that we have to have to our ethics, to the way that we move through this world, because they're not just decisions we make now. Our ethics, I would postulate, are eschatology. Our ethics are bigger than we realize. How we live now speaks to our belief about the future. Luke 7.35 says, Wisdom is justified. Other translations say vindicated by all her children. To put that in, in a more fluid terms, the proof of wisdom is in the kind of people it produces. And so this brings a prodding, probing question into the fray here. How does this affect me? How are my beliefs communicated through my ethics, even if only to myself and to my Lord? How do I inhabit time in response to the truth about God and about man? What seeds am I planting? Am, am I cultivating patience? Am I cultivating Christ-likeness in this time that he has given me? Because Christ has restored that covenant relation with man. And he is the bridge through which we come to God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. So, how am I utilizing that? How, how do I respond to the work of Christ in my life? Am I planting good seeds? Am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Am I cultivating patience and Christ-likeness? Or am I sitting back in a state of nostalgia about the former days? Verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Everybody has the good old days. There, everybody has some version of the good old days. We like to look back and say, things were better when I was in high school. Things were better here. Things were better then. We only had to pay $8 for a, ga a gallon for gas when I was in middle school. Um... You could go all day into the good old days and that, that nostalgia. But the reality is, everyone has a time like that. Everybody has that, that, that perspective that my time was the best. But was it? Because the heart is desperately wicked. The heart is full of sin. And so was one wicked generation really that much better than another? Or is it more the fact that we were in it? There's, 
I've been I've been down for the count the last couple of weeks. I've been sick with asthma problems. I've been struggling to catch my breath a lot of times, and that will those of you who have asthma that will cause you to pause. That will make you think about some things. <clears throat> Not in the sense that I thought I was going to die that day, but it certainly forces you to consider: Is this how I will go someday? Is this how my death will come. I couldn't help but think of John, the end of the book of John, when Jesus said to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will clothe you and, and they will take you where you do not want to go. And John puts a little footnote there. And he said this to show him that what kind of death he would glorify God. When do we ever ask that question, how will I die to the glory of God? How will I glorify God both in my life and in my death? And I have been, I found myself saying this, this Latin phrase the last several weeks. Um, I've thrown parts of it out in the last couple episodes, but memento mori, memento vitae. Remember, you must die, which was a common thing in the, the medieval period, especially after the plague. Memento mori, remember death. Remember you are mortal, you must die. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto all men to die once, and then cometh judgment. So memento mori, memento vitae, remember life, remember you must live. Colossians 3.1-4 tells us that there is a certain way we have to live, that there is a life to live when we are in Christ that we did not live before. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put the death, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of the things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you are to put off all of these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. <clears throat> So the end is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. There is, th this is the question that when we evaluate our walk as people. What seeds am I planting? What is my, the application of my eschatology? Because this thing we call eschatology, that's more than just drawing up charts about when Christ returns. Eschatology is how we live in the meantime. Eschatology is 
what do we do until Christ returns? And why should we do it? And in that, I'm reminded of the example of C.S. Lewis, who gave this, who wrote this essay in 1949, <clears throat> um, entitled "Learning in Wartime." Lewis was during the during World War II was a avid supporter of going to continuing to go to college, continuing to learn and study when England was at war. And he starts this essay with a university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves, or to start making yourselves, into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, or historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What is the use of beginning a task which we have so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed how can we, continue to, make, to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Does that sound familiar? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Now it seems to me that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other questions, which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. Going on in th this essay, C.S. Lewis um, continues making his case for continuing to learn and grow as a person during war, because whether you eat or you drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. So what seeds ought we to plant? Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is, a, is as a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Wisdom is an inheritance. It is profitable. This is financial language, which is one of the things that the New King James does well. The, um, the CSB puts it as advantage. Um, some of the modern translations don't keep that financial language there, but there's a certain poetic illustration here of wisdom as profitable. And we've been seeing a lot of talk in Ecclesiastes about profits and losses and, and, and wealth. And wisdom is an inheritance and a profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not after the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. For his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth her fruit, that beareth, fruit, that beareth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the, the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the ways of man, but the ways of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm chapter 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect 
converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Proverbs 3 My son, do not forget my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart, so thou shalt find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy, thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thy own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord. Neither be weary of his correction. For whom the, lo the Lord loveth, he correcteth. Is even as a father, the son in whom he delighteth. And with that constellation of texts, we have the presence of wisdom and its source. That the kind of wisdom we are talking about in Ecclesiastes flows from the fountain of God. So the wisdom that is good with an inheritance is the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of Tyler, but the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God is in a category all its own. There's something different about the wisdom of God, that it is something that directs our path. It is something that, as Proverbs 3 says, it will go well for you. You will build a good reputation, but it also brings correction. It also brings rebuke. It brings chastening because he chastens every son that he receives there is there is discipline there is correction because sometimes i'm going to get things wrong sometimes i don't have it figured out sometimes i'm going to do stupid things because i'm still learning i'm still yearning to know god and know him more and sometimes that means i am under the rod of his discipline and even when things don't go well God is wise God is still God and regardless of whether I am experiencing prosperity quote-unquote or adversity God is wise God is good and God is Lord Thomas Boston once wrote, If our trade with the world sinks, let us see to drive a trade with heaven more vigorously. See if, by means of the crook, we can reach more faith, love, heavenly-mindedness, contempt of the world, humility, and self-denial. So while we lose at one hand, we shall gain 
at another. That regardless of whether we have bigger barns, like Proverbs 3, or if we have a Job encounter, where all of our material comforts are pulled away. God did not cease to be wise, and there is, there is room for us to grow. Sometimes that is chastening. Sometimes that is a painful growing period. And sometimes that gets very uncomfortable. Sometimes that is very hard to grow. Sometimes growth is accompanied by pain. That's something we know physically. When we were when we were kids, we knew about growing pains and that our bodies hurt when they get longer. It's the same thing sometimes. Sometimes it hurts us in this world to grow us in spiritual. Sometimes it hurts us in in the bank account. Sometimes it hurts us in the body because God is using the uncomfortable. He's using the hard to cultivate more Christ-likeness in us. So what does that look like? What does that look like for us to, quote-unquote, eschatologize our ethics, to make our ethics our moral compass, the way we, we act? How do we make that more than just how we act? How does that become something Christ-like? Where does our theology meet our philosophy? Where does theology find its feet? And in short, we look at Calvary. Turn with me to 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and we're going to consider a handful of passages between those two, starting in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5, which reads, picking up in verse 14, <clears throat> For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself, through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So the cross compels us. In this context, it compelled Paul to present the gospel, to preach the gospel to all that would listen. In terms of eschatology, we're talking about the advance of the kingdom of God, the advance of the lordship of God. Christ is Lord. So all that happens now is we become cognizant of it. We become more aware of Christ's reign over all things because he's in all and is all. And so the person and work of Christ carries us forth. It is not my doctrine or my principles that I need to be primarily concerned with, but with bearing the image of Christ. To quote-unquote eschatologize our ethics. That's just a fancy word for 
becoming more Christ-like for sanctification. And I think a great example of what that looks like is encapsulated in the imagery of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. Um, Paul is writing on this, and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body. Ad hoc corpus meum. This is my body. This has meaning here. Which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do, as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The imagery of the Lord's Supper points us to the gospel, points us to what Christ did and who he is. <clears throat> the person and work of Christ. This is my body, this is my blood, which I gave for you. And every time you partake in this, you are partaking in the Lord's death. Because the benefits of his death have been transferred to your account, have been imputed to you. Because Christ came to save sinners. And so as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That this is where we are anchored is that Christ died for sinners. And this is a truth that we live out repeatedly. Not just on Easter. This is something we are reminding ourselves of. We are remembering. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. And then jumping down to verse 30. <clears throat> and why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ, Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus... What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If Christ was just a guy, if Jesus was just a man, then his death meant nothing. His death accomplished nothing in regards to our relation to God. And so we are still in our sins, we are still spiritually dead, and nothing really changed. The wrath of God still abides in us. So let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But Christ is not still in the tomb. Christ rose, triumphant and victorious, having accomplished what he set out to do, to ransom sinners. And so he has ascended back to heaven 
where he he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day he will return, and he will judge the quick and the dead, as the creed does say. And what do we do in the meantime? Well, he answered this question to his disciples, leading up to his arrest. John chapter 15. He says, I am the vine, I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me... Ye can do nothing. If a man abideth not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered, and men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. And for purpose of repetition, Colossians 3, 1-4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The ESV says you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. We, quote-unquote, eschatologize our ethics. We make our ethics eschatology, not by our undoing. It is a byproduct of us abiding in Christ, who is our life and our death and our resurrection. You see, Christ was born of the Virgin Mary, that he, we who were born in Adam may be born in Christ. Christ lived a sinless life so that we that live in Adam may live in Christ. Christ died an undeserved sinner's death, so that we who are dead in Adam may die in Christ. Christ was raised from the dead, so that we who are dead in Adam may be raised to new life in Christ. My two favorite words in the entire Bible, in Christ. That is where we live. That is where we camp out, in Christ. Every day we are either in Adam or in Christ. And if outside the gospel is to be in Adam. But in Christ, we have life. That is, that is the fork in this road. Christ has made us his own. And we are no longer in Adam if we are in Christ. But every person that has ever lived has lived and died and will one day be risen either in Adam or in Christ. Either they will live, die, and be judged in Adam or in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism has a beautiful um, answer to this, this question of how we live. 
It says, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? The answer, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, hath fully satisfied for all my sins, and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me, that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. So, that phrase, you are not your own, we modern Christians don't know what to do with that phrase. That is a phrase we don't like to read all the time. When we get caught up in the flesh and the desires of the flesh, and we read, you are not your own, we don't like it. Because we've bought into this idea of autonomy, of independence, that um, it's all about me. It's all about my decisions. It's all about my this, my that, um, my principles. And that's how we approach ethics, is my principles, what I think is right. But the Bible tells us what God has called good, what God has called right. The Old Testament shows us what God has said is right, what God has said is good. But in the New Testament, God shows us who is good. And he has said that only God is good. And so if we are abiding in Christ, it's not because we are self-sufficient. Ye are the branches. Apart from me, ye can do nothing. That speaks to our inability to execute and the state of dependence that we all live in. This is where we live, is I am not my own. Consider the work of God. Verse 13, who can make that straight? which he has made crooked. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? What God has bent? Literally in the Hebrew. God is sovereign. God is the one in control. He is the one molding the, the clay into a pot. Isaiah 64, 8 says, Yet, O Lord, you are our potter. You are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hands. In the preceding verse, we have all become as one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are but filthy rags. Consider the work of God, who, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? And by default, who can make crooked that which he has made straight? When God does something, when God acts, he means well. He means it. This is not something that is um, an if, and, or but scenario. This is not something that it is up in the air. It's in the wind. When God saves sinners, he saves them. When God says 
he is sovereign. When God, when God tells us these things, that's not a that's not a neutral statement. That's not a feel good message. That is, that is truth. That is the way things are. That is a dose of reality. For who can make straight that which he has made crooked? As he said to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Sometimes we need that dose of reality. Sometimes we need to remember who is in fact on the throne. When we read in Revelation that he judges and makes war. But in terms of how we live now, how we, as those who are in Christ, who have been ransomed and redeemed by the person and work of Christ 1,000%. It means we have to, it means that we will experience joy and we will experience pain. And it's not, 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 it's not necessarily out of some punishment or some sadistic, um, ty tyrannical God that's detached from his people. But there is a purpose in joy and there is a purpose in pain. There is a purpose in all these things because everything has meaning. And that's hard to find outside of Christ. But the Bible says that we who are in Christ, we mourn, but we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Man is not an independent. He is ever dependent on the God who created him. And the God who redeems his broken creation. For who can make straight that which he has made crooked? Isaiah, Isaiah once wrote, I am he. I am God. There is no other. Let us remind ourselves that we are bound to the God who is. If you are not in Christ, if this is not true about you, I implore you, be reconciled to God. Come unto Christ for redemption, for forgiveness, for grace. Come into Christ because you can't, without him you can do nothing. Without him, there is nothing. And let us conclude with poetry. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon the rock and established my goings. And he has put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto my God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust and respecteth not the proud, nor as such turn aside to lies. Psalm 115 But our God is in the heavens. 
he hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like them, and so is every one that trusteth in them. Revelation 4.11 Thou art worthy, O Lord, to re receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they were created. They are and were created. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto all men to die once, and then comes judgment. Memento mori, remember you must die. Colossians 3.1-4 says that if we are in Christ, we must live. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we will be raised with him in glory. Memento mori, memento vitae. Remember, you must die. Remember, you must live. Be reconciled to Christ. Be encouraged in the gospel. Be made new in the likeness of Christ. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.